Gracious God, we thank you for the sounds of life. We thank you for the new life you've given us in this new year. Now we ask you help us to get closer to you and closer to one another. Help us to think about what it means by becoming us. What is the us we're supposed to become? Who are we? How are we created? What gifts do we bring to you? And how can we be in relationship with each other when we're so different? These are the things that challenge us in life. And as we start this new sermon series, maybe there be some things that perhaps we can unpack, learn more about ourselves and about each other, and more about some of the characters of the Bible who might also be like us or we like them. Pour into the words you have me to say. May they be acceptable and pleasing to you. May they always point the light back to you. In Jesus Christ's name we ask and pray. And the people of God said together, Amen. Preemptive strike. Well, it's fine at home. It's hot here, so hotter I get. So January begins our new sermon series, Becoming Us. The Enneagram, the Bible, and your relationships. And over the next several weeks, we all have a chance to get a new start in a new year on the road back to God. And you can follow along in your notes on your U version today. So that we can all live more fully into who we're created to be. Becoming us is focused around something that's become popular in Christian circles over the last couple of years. It's called the Enneagram. Anybody heard of the Enneagram so I can kind of know who I'm talking to? Only a handful. Oh, Hannah, all right. You and me, right? So you're going to be looking it up. You're going to be looking at it, trying to figure it all out. I'm going to give you some steps to do that. There's some things in the bulletin to look at. There'll be new things each week. I'll be sending an email out to tell you more about it. This has really gained a lot of popularity in Christian circles, especially among clergy. And there's a lot of things that are out there about it. People are interested in it. Taking online tests, you can find lots of them. I've given you uh, an online test to, to be able to do in the app today that uh, you can be able to look at. Actually, it's going to come out in a text at about 10.15. It also was in the email last night that I sent out. People listening to the podcast, they're buying books about it. For example, The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery by Ian Morgan Crone sold over 100,000 books in little over a year. 100,000 books. That's a good place to start. Those links are in your app, but you can also go online to Amazon and see all that. Or Richard Rohr's book, which is the Enneagram, A Christian Perspective. So what is the Enneagram? See, if you pronounce the E and the A, it's Enneagram is what it is. Enneagram comes off your tongue a lot easier. So say Enneagram. Enneagram, 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 Enneagram. I will call it Enneagram enough times so you'll understand it's harder to say than it sounds. The Enneagram, see, the Enneagram is a personality assessment tool with a Christian perspective based on a numbering system, one through nine. Say one through nine. Good, you're still with me. 
And your number helps to uncover your unique God-given personality traits. The nine types of the Enneagram have been called the nine faces of God. Each type can reveal something of God's own nature. Each type is also a path towards transformation in Christ. It's a way of becoming who we were made to be. At our staff retreat this year, we all learned our Enneagram number. It was a great day of self-discovery for all of us, I believe. The Enneagram has been teaching me what it looks like to love God and my whole self. Not just my intellect, not just my instincts, not just my emotions, but all of it. The Enneagram urges us to integrate our head and our heart and our hands, which is a big deal for us here at Good Shepherd and what we try to accomplish. True worship and spiritual transformation is a process that includes thinking and feeling and doing. This is what makes it different from just personality tests. But it's also important to remember that it's just a tool of self-discovery. It's not directed by Scripture. It's not anything like that. We're not going to find it anywhere. You can find it in the self-help books or in the New Age books or you can find it in the Christian books. It can be used any way you want to use it. There's been some debate and discussion about the origins of it through, uh, though. Some proponents of the Enneagram attribute it to the Desert Fathers or other ancient Christian groups or non-Christian groups. Claims for an ancient origin, however, have never been substantiated. Some older and more conservative evangelical Christians claim it has a New Age origin, so they just throw it out. Younger, more progressive evangelicals look back to where it became popular in various Catholic communities in the 1970s. You can find what you want to find in it. Some of the promoters of the Enneagram include the former Jesuit priest Don Rizzo, the Franciscan friar Richard Rohr, which I've mentioned, And in 1997, Rizzo co-founded the Enneagram Institute, an organization that helped bring the Enneagram to a broader audience, and those are his books. And they have spirituality in them, but they're not directly particular anything because he's reaching a whole different group of people, a larger audience. All this begs the question, why are some Christians enthusiastic about the Enneagram? Maybe it's a need for a simpler way to relate to each other. The 1970s, some folks would say, I'm a Capricorn. They used those term definition to be able to figure that out. The astrological signs go back into the, into way, 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 way back into the day of the Magi. They understood the fact was that the, the king, the king star, was in Pisces. All those constellations are in the sky that are from the astrological signs. 1990s, people would say, I'm an INTJ. That was a way of defining, of figuring it out from the Myers-Briggs and being able to say those kind of things. We also think our spiritual gifts are important. Though it's interesting that most of us don't know what our spiritual gifts are. If I had to ask you right now, it would be hard-pressed to be able to tell me. Maybe we, in each generation, want a simple way to both convey information about our personality to others and also identify personality traits of people around us. I think like Myers-Briggs and astrological signs, the Enneagram allows people to convey a significant amount of information about their personality in a compact way 
for people to speak the same cultural code in Christian circles. There's no doubt it hasn't had an impact on the people who have become interested in it, including me. And there are lots of other pastors and writers and Christians who have really delved deeply into it, deeper than me. Maybe it's because of my type. Because we all have a type. And the types are actually listed in your bulletin today. And you may start looking at those and thinking, just looking at them, being able to think, well, I fit more into this one than I do this one. Or this one seems exactly like me. Or I'm not really sure. Or there's two or three different ones that seem to speak to you more than another. And we find that same kind of thing that will be focused not so much on the types, but on types of people we find in the Bible. There's been lots of things that have been done to figure out characters in the Bible and what their type might be. And through their stories, hopefully learn more about each type and how God has created us uniquely as well to fit together to do God's work. So how do you know what type you might be? Well, the oldest form of Enneagram typing is based on self-assessment. No one can do this for you. Some people might guess what you are, but only you know really who you are. And, of course, God. And where you choose a number that best fits your personality type. Sometimes aided by a brief questionnaire, and I'll give you a link to one of those. And last night I gave you a link to it. And as Don Rizzo says in his book, Understanding the Enneagram, there are several rules of thumb that can help determine if we've correctly chosen our type. If the type you have chosen not only stirs up deep feelings, but also helps you understand aspects of yourself you've never seen before, then it's probably your type. I say it again. If the type you have chosen not only stirs up deep feelings, but also helps you understand aspects of yourself you've never seen before, then it's probably your type. If your choice leads you to make new connections and see new patterns in yourself and your relationships, then you've probably accurately typed yourself. So that's a journey we're going to be on, and you can take it with me, and you don't have to. And Everything we do will still be biblically focused on a character, and you'll learn from the character whether you ever look at anything else besides what's in your bulletin or not. But if you want to go deeper and take this journey with me, then I would invite you to to, to delve into some of this to be able to figure it out. So the first type we'll be looking at is five. Say five. Fives are some of the unsung heroes of the Enneagram, it says. They don't seek to be honored at banquets or showered in the spotlight with public praise. Fives know what they know, and they do what they do, and they do it well. I've never met a five who wasn't at least something knowledgeable in virtually everything. Fives are the researchers behind the project. They are the quality engineers making sure your new car runs perfectly. They are the chemists developing new, safer, sustainable formulas and medicines. If you have a five in your life, you know they are great to have around like a walking Google search. Ask them a question, they can probably give you an answer. If not, they'll disappear for a while, then they'll come back with one. Fives read the encyclopedia as fun for ch- as children. Fives, often called observers or investigators, are typically not very outgoing. Fives tend to keep to themselves at parties and family gatherings. Fives, most fives, will have a fortress of solitude where they can disappear for a while. It's their space, and no one else is allowed in unless invited and accompanied by the five. 
Being around large groups of people or in the spotlight for extended periods of time saps the emotional energy right out of a five. But if you give them a task, a research project, or something requiring their technical expertise, they'll work on it for hours or for months continually and do it better than anyone. Fives sound great, right? I mean, guess what I am? I'm a five. Did anybody, Daddy, were you shocked by that? Anybody shocked in this room that I'm a five if you had to figure any of this stuff out? But wait, because that sounds really great that it says all the great stuff about ourselves. But there's more, because the Enneagram also shows our dark wounds and fears. And we'll get to that later in the sermon today. So maybe that's why when I think of fives in the Bible, the first one I came up with was the Magi. They seem very much like fives to me, the fives of their day. They fit to me the description of a five to a T. They were magi, which was a term that referred to the Persian priestly caste of Zoroastrianism, which was a religion about light, actually. As part of their religion, they were the, priest, the Persian priestly caste. And these priests paid particular attention to the stars, and they gained international reputation for astrology, which was the astronomy of their day. It wasn't what it is today where you go look at your horoscope in the back of a paper and decide what your life's going to be like. That wasn't what it was like back then. And they studied these stars, and they were in the court, and they told the kings what to do, and they were highly regarded in every area of science at that time. They were the fives. Another five, I think, was Thomas. You think about Thomas, the favorite of all the disciples for me, shocker, the doubter. The investigator, but somebody of great, deep, personal faith. And then I began to think more about beyond that, because we've heard these stories before and that sort of thing, and we'll hear Thomas's story near Easter again. But somebody's story we don't hear about a lot is somebody I think is also a five, and that's Nicodemus. To Nicodemus. He only appears in John's Gospel account. He must have made an impact on John. He first appears in John 3 and then pops up three times during his gospel. If Nicodemus is a five, he's a five on a journey towards something greater than he could have ever imagined. Starting in John 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night. Well, here are a few things we know about him, and they fit really well with a five. First, he was a Pharisee. Pharisees were concerned with doing the right things in the right ways, and they'd be very appealing to fives like him. Two, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, also known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was comprised of the top 70 law experts from both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, a two-party system, not unlike ours today. And third, he came to Jesus at night, not during the day when he was around crowds. Why at night? Was he scared? Maybe. But if Nicodemus was a five, then he wasn't afraid of the crowds. He just wanted Jesus to himself, to talk to him deeper. And he starts the, up the conversation with Jesus in this way. 
Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. No flattery, no small talk, no introduction, just right to the point. Respectful, but straight shooting. Also notice the scientific language as he opens. We know X because of Y, and because of Y, we can believe this, and because of this, we can believe this. Many fives approach faith the same way. They approach every other aspect of their life. They tend to be very evidence-based by the book. But they might not be so keen on church small groups or meet and greet time in worship. They want the sermon to be factual and scripture-driven. There are a lot of flowery language or stories. My struggle sometimes because I just get to the facts. So what does Jesus do? He immediately responds with metaphorical, even poetic language, instead of spelling it out to the five of exactly what he's supposed to believe. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. What does that mean? Nicodemus is trying to take Jesus literally. He says, can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? That's a five. What are you talking about? Stop with all your flowery language and just tell me what you really mean. That's scientifically impossible. But Jesus is relentless. He starts off a figurative language, then reels in using Nicodemus' own worldview against him, exposing his concrete approach to faith. He says this later on, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, you want to talk scientifically, rationally, logically about God, as if God is some kind of formula? Nicodemus, you can't even explain the wind, much less God. Even today, we can't explain the wind. No one's ever seen the wind. You've seen the effects of it, but no one's ever seen the wind. You can't explain it in the same way. We can't even explain the universe, the world, the atoms. Every time we go into even science can't explain everything because they keep getting deeper and deeper into the smallest particle and they find something else and they find a whole new universe and a whole new cosmos and the God particle, even they call it even in the scientific community that exists that no one can understand. How much less can we explain the creator of it all? But we can feel, Jesus says, the effects of God all around us. That's what he's trying to say. We feel the effects of God. We've never seen the Holy Spirit either, but we've felt the effects of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We've felt the presence in moments in our life that we just can't seem to explain. And when you can't explain it, that is definitely God. Because God is unexplainable sometimes. We can feel the effects of God all around us. But fives don't like that word, feel. They don't. I had a whole month of feeling. I can tell you, I don't like the word feel. Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to feel something when all he knows to do is think. 
God gave us a brain, yes, but God also gave us a heart. And yes, before you say it scientifically, even as a five, I know that your emotions don't really lie in your heart. That is a pump, and it keeps things going. But for the sake of this, this is going to be not that. And Nicodemus still isn't picking up what Jesus is putting down. He's still asking questions because fives are the most inquisitive of the types on an Enneagram. So Jesus tries to put it down in terms Nicodemus just might finally get. He goes further. You are Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Once again, he doesn't give Nicodemus answers. He gives him a research project. Because he goes forth later on. And talks about the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is in Daniel 7. And he wants him to go back to the scriptures as a teacher and be able to see what does Daniel 7 say about the Son of Man and how he saves. And then figure out who I am. And then he wants him to go to Moses. When Moses was at the snake in the desert. And he wants him to go back to Numbers 21 where that takes place and see how God saves all the people. You'll also notice this is the verses that we quote so often from John 3.16. But there are a lot of verses before you get to John 3.16 that set up what that really means. This is what Jesus is doing. So as far as we can tell, that's the end of the conversation. Go do your research. Go figure it out. Have a nice day. He did his research. He did his homework. He found answers. How do we know that? Because the next time we see him, he's coming to Jesus' defense when he's on trial. John seven fifty. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and, was one of, and who was one of their own number, asked... Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Because the trial, they're trying to do things the wrong way, and Nicodemus won't have it. He tries to defend Jesus. It's huge for a five. When fives are in healthy places, in security, according to the Enneagram, they become a different number. We'll learn more about this over the weeks to come, that you go different numbers depending on whether you're doing well or not doing so well. That's part of this deal, too. In this case, they become a type 8. Say 8. They become what's called the challenger. Fives, then, are more willing to make their voices be heard, stand up for their beliefs. Nicodemus becomes an 8 because he's more secure in who he is and what God has called him to do. He gets chastised for it and mocked for it, but he doesn't back down all the way to the end. If a five believe in something deeply, they will not back down. They go forward no matter what the obstacle. And the final time we see Nicodemus is at what we thought was the end, and they thought was the end, that after Jesus died, he was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph was joined by Nicodemus in preparing the body for burial. Don't overlook what it says about Nicodemus. It says, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. John 19, 39. 
75 pounds of aloes, oils, and spices, including myrrh. The illusion at the very beginning when the Magi brought the gift of myrrh for his death, for his embalming, as we look at it, more than likely as a very expensive thing. That Remember the Holy Family. They didn't just lay around in Bethlehem. When the Magi came, there was no baby. Sorry, baby. It says they entered the house and saw a what? Child. We know that child was probably two years or less because why? Because Herod issued an order to kill children who had been born who were two years or younger. The Magi didn't enter a cave. They didn't enter a stable. The Magi entered a house, probably Joseph's family's house in Bethlehem. And when they came in, they gave these gifts. And after they gave these gifts, what happens? Joseph receives a dream that says to do what? Go to Egypt because Herod is coming to kill the child. This is part of the 12 days of Christmas, the slaughter of the innocents, because it's not a simple story that's so serene on Christmas Day. Herod comes and they kill every child in Bethlehem under the age of two. Imagine the sacrifice of your child under the age of two, even for the Son of God. There is pain. It's a hurricane. And they leave, and they go to Egypt, and guess what they probably sold to be able to live in Egypt? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because they were all very expensive. Later on, the illusions become for us what they meant. And so Nicodemus brings myrrh because that was used. Seventy-five pounds pounds of this we don't know how much the the magi brought the baby but you see the gifts usually like about this big you know so it doesn't seem like it's very huge but 75 pounds is a lot more than that and they would embalm the body with that and it would have cost a ton why is this important because here is the dark side of a five that we alluded to earlier all of us have a major vice in these numbers like the seven deadly sins The major vice of a five is avarice or greed. Not greed in the sense of what you may think about it. But fives can tend to be borderline hoarders. Fives will often keep the most random stuff and stockpile it because who knows? You might need it someday. They like to collect things. Fives can be very stingy with their knowledge, their possessions, their time, their emotions. Fives like to keep things to themselves, literally. But when a five moves to a place of health, they become some of the most generous people in the world. They no longer operate out of a scarcity mindset. They realize they have more than they need, and there's plenty to go around. Healthy fives can be some of the best teachers and mentors and philanthropists around. Nicodemus... And I love this little, this little piece here. I invite you to be free from the fear of scarcity and not have all you need to survive. Trust me, you will not run out. I'm generous and loving God who is mindful of all your needs. Fives need to hear that all the time. 
I need to hear that all the time. In the church, we all need to hear that. Nicodemus, in one last act of faith, offered up probably thousands of dollars worth of burial spices that he'd likely been storing away for himself, a member of his family, because you never know. But then he saw someone else in need of what he had, and he gave it freely. Nicodemus wasn't in the spotlight. He quite literally avoided it, but his transformation is, incredibly, is apparent incredibly in these several verses. By the end of John, he is a believer. He has moved from where he has been. We see it also in Thomas and the way that he lives his life. And we definitely see it in the Magi as they return home. They're changed. I always wonder and would love to know what happened to them when they got home. How did this experience of journeying, which probably took up to two years or longer, how did it change their lives? How were they different? Because you see, for fives, the greatest distance between two points in our body is not from top of our skulls to the flats of our feet. As the poem says, the greatest distance, the longest journey you will ever take is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. That is a five's hardest journey. Nicodemus didn't experience real transformation until Jesus opened up his heart to feeling what God was doing. And we learn sometimes there are no explanations for things. Sometimes there is insufficient evidence to prove, to believe. And the question then becomes, are you able to believe anyways? Because if you want, or anybody wants, to just simply be able to say, well, prove to me that God exists. Prove to me that Jesus died for us. Prove, prove, prove. There is no proof. That is the hardest for fives. It is not concrete. It is abstract. It is a matter of the heart, not the head. Do you trust God even when it doesn't make logical sense? For all of us. Do you trust God even when it doesn't make logical sense? Do you listen to God and what God tells you to do? Or when you see a star in the sky, go travel to some place you've never been before to live a different life? Or is it lip service? If I see enough, then I will believe. If I see it all, I will believe. What happens when you can't see anything at all? And you don't know what direction you're supposed to go. But God tells you to go anyways. What happens if you have no idea what tomorrow might hold or the day after? Or the next year? What are you willing to do to listen to God and to do what God says? That's the questions that the fives give to us all. So the question I have for you to close is, are you a five? Maybe you've heard yourself in this today, and that speaks to you. I encourage you to investigate that, to, to figure that out. Maybe it's parts of a five. We all have parts of all of these, but some are more dominant than other. I think, it, for my own example... I don't know that there's much else besides a five that I could be. 
So I'm pretty quintessential that in all the ways, including the things that I'm fearful of. Greatest fear of a five is not knowing. That's the greatest fear of a five, not knowing something. That's why they know a little bit about everything. So they will know. So my question that I'll keep asking for us during this time is, what's your number? What's your number? You can guess with as simply as you want by looking at it on a piece of paper and maybe figure it out 50% of the time. You take the quiz, it's 80% effective. You can dig deeper. You can go deep as you want to go with this. Or you can do not do it at all, and I'm fine with that too. I think you'll still get something out of talking about the biblical characters that are important. But I hope that maybe some way in this new year, you'll want to go a little deeper to understand yourself a little bit better because I have found that when you do that, even the dark stuff, it helps us so much better to understand ourselves to be in relationship with others around us. So I hope this journey will be one you'll take with me and be able to explore this. If you need help, let me know. Be glad to talk to you. Remember number five. Five like to sit down, share information. They like to help people. They like to teach. They like to mentor. That's the hardest part sometimes. You walk through stuff all the time that I could help you with, and I see it, and I even hear about it. You don't come to me. One of the greatest things I can do in life is be a mentor. I'm a mentor to pastors. It's one of my chief gifts. But sadly, the congregation doesn't avail itself of that very often. I know that's hard, but I hate to hear about all the things you go through. You know, I can help. And if I can't help, I can probably direct you to where help is. Life is too big to walk it alone. Even the Magi knew that when they were traveling. Because there's probably four to seven of them. Not three. We base that based on the fact of the three gifts, but it's unlikely they would travel in that small of a group. And why has it got to be three gifts anyways? Have not one person given three gifts before? Have not ten folks given three gifts before? So there are probably four to seven of them traveling together, and these three get all the limelight, but there was more of them probably. And what are their names? Anybody remember? First one's at the C. Caspar, good job. Next one's the B. Balthazar. And the last one is an M. Malchior. So, something you can do this year to start off a new way, we did this at the Youth Progressive Dinner when they came to our house, is you can do an Epiphany house blessing on your house. And how you do this is, been done for centuries, or probably millennia, is that you take a piece of chalk. And above your door frame, on the outside, you put the number 20, representing, what do you think? The century, yeah, the millennial, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's the first part. Then you put a C, which stands for, what do you think? Yeah, I can say it for Christos, but a lot of times it stands for Caspar, too. Plus M, plus B. So those are the three wise men, right? And it also means... Christ blessed this house. And at the end of it, you put, this year, 20. So it's 20 plus C plus M plus B plus 20. 
And there's a blessing. You can look up online. You can look it up. There's a prayer you can do. And you can bless your house for this coming year, much as they would have done century after century on Epiphany. And the last thing that we, we do as we gather in this place is an opportunity to be able to take a moment from the playbook of Christmas Eve, but when all of us are gathered together, to remember that we are the light of the world because he gave that to us. He was the light of the world while he was here. And he poured that light out on all of us. And so first of all, I need to make sure everybody has a candle. So if you don't have a candle, raise your hand. Because I need somebody to go to the back and get some candles. Everybody got a candle? Everybody got the message? Wow, pretty close. Candles are in the very back. And usually there's an owl popping in, but he's not popping in. So anybody need a candle? Wow, all right. I need a candle, though. Got any extras? That one looks kind of rough. I want to tighten that one up there. <laughs> the kids are coming back in. And kids of a certain age can have a candle. You know whether your child can handle a candle or not. There are electric candles somewhere that they had them out. If you have an electric candle, parents and others, grandparents, everybody else, please do not let them bang their candle on the pew in front of them. That would be the natural thing to do, of course. But we want to make sure that we teach them starting up from this point that their candle is, even though it's plastic, the same as this. Do not put this candle against your pew either, because otherwise we'll have a lot of problems. Everybody in? Everybody got some sort of candle? Yep, I heard a lot of yeps. There's a lot of yeps going on. Good, I like it. Sound good? Lights are going off. I'm just making sure I didn't miss something in the service, because I'm not exactly on. Did I forget anything in the service today? Oh, I'm good. Awesome. That is so great. And so I just want you to look at, in a minute, we're going to light these candles, just like we do on Christmas Eve. Now, here's the procedure for lighting a candle, in case you're not here on Christmas Eve with us. The way to light a candle is, the candle that's lit stays like this. Thank you for demonstrating. And the candle that's not lit turns just like this, and then it's a simple way to light it. If you do this little number like this and try to figure all this out, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to light a candle. And you'll also spill wax on yourself, too. That doesn't feel good either. You going to help? Thank you. By the way, come over here. I'm not sure everybody knows. They may, they may have forgotten. We should tell them, right? Sure. Shelly is your new lay leader for 2020. You just blew my candle, right? You can clap for her now, but... Oh, man. Now I got wax on my shirt, too. No, okay. I'll light from the Christ candle. Are you ready? Okay. We know the procedure, so you're good, right? That's right. Show them again. That's right. So everybody stand up. Get your candle ready. Let's sing together. Here we go.
look at the light around you. It's not as nearly as clear as it is at night, but still, if you look around, there's a lot of light from these candles. This is your light. Christmas may be over or near its end, but Epiphany is a manifestation of God. It is the light being brought forth into the world now. If we've learned the lessons of Christmas, then now we know what we need to do at the beginning of the year. We need to take this light out into the world. Light our part of the world wherever we go. Change the world. Take a new road on the way home. A new path. Change our lives. Meet the Christ child who will be raised into a child and into the Son of God who will become our Savior as he goes through his life. And whenever you look at light, think about the fact is you are called to reflect that one true light. We will follow the light. We will follow the light, seeking the Lamb, our saving love divine. And all of God's people said together, blow the light out. The light in your heart. Amen. Happy Epiphany. Have some king's cake. We have king's cake, the tradition of the three kings. It's a great little cake. It's different, but you'll love it. Have some cake.